0: It is training camp season in football, hot, humid, day after day of practice. Teams practice, and then after practice, they watch film of practice. They discuss what they did well in practice, discuss what they need to improve on in practice, and then they go practice again, day after day after day, in the heat, in the humidity, Those dog days of summer seemingly having no end. It is a grind over and over again. It's a long grind. The Patriots, for instance, began practicing on July 26th, and their first regular season game is not until the second Sunday of September. whole lot of practice between July 26th and the middle of September. And yet none of us really wonders, why is this so? We know why they don't start with games on day one. They're not ready. They have to prepare. They have to work on offense. They have to work on defense. They have to get special teams going. They have to make sure uh, their game plan, they they do game planning more in the regular season, but they have to get the vital things installed that are going to help them hopefully have a successful season. This is the same reason, preparation, why we don't send soldiers into war on day one. They go through basic training. It's the same reason why teachers don't assign or do midterms on the first day of school. There has to be some preparation. It's the same reason you don't have performance reviews in work on the first week on the job. We need preparation. And if we are not immune from it in these other spheres of life, we are certainly not immune from it, and we desperately need preparation as followers of Christ. We need a plan. We need to understand what we will do, how we will respond, what it means when we encounter hardship or opposition or affliction simply because we are followers of Jesus Christ. What we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17 through chapter 3, verse 5 is that awareness of the coming return of Christ and certainty about affliction that the church will face enable us to not be swayed away from the faith. Let me say this again. Awareness of the coming return of Christ and certainty about affliction the church will face, both of these enable us to not be swayed away from the faith. Let me read 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 5. And I invite you to follow along attentively as I read... then we will get to work. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes to the church at Thessalonica, beginning in chapter 2, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. And may we be ministered to as we walk through this passage and see both first the future glory of Christ and present awareness. And both of these will guide us, will prepare us for any affliction that we may endure for the name of Christ. Future glory, present awareness. First, the future glory of Christ in chapter 2, verse 17 through verse 20. If you recall... Earlier in the book, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter to the church in Thessalonica, he gave a defense of his ministry to the church, of how he had sacrificed and given of himself for the sake of the building up of the church body. They had not; He and those who labored alongside of him had not taken advantage of the church. Rather, they have given sacrificially for the good of the church. And now we see more of a poignant glimpse into the heart of Paul in verses 17 and 18. Paul writes in verse 17, but since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. So here's Paul desiring to get back to Thessalonica to check in on the church that he loves so dearly, but he's unable to do so. And ultimately, he says he's unable to do so because he and those with him have been hindered by Satan. If you see that in verse 18. We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. In regards to specific ways that Paul and those with him had been hindered from returning to Thessalonica, we do not have specific details or information. It could have been that there was great financial penalty, that there was fear of arrest for Paul or fear of arrest for other Christians Uh, in the church in Thessalonica. If you were to go back in Acts 17 and read about the founding of the church, and then uh, Acts 17, 1 through 9, the founding, and then verse 10, how Paul and those with him had to leave uh, in a hurry uh, due to threats coming upon not only them, but the church, that might have played into it. It may have been something similar to Paul, what he had written about elsewhere, of a thorn in the flesh that he carried, which could have been a physical ailment or illness or hardship that, or burden that he had. We don't know what specifically it was, but Paul in the church in Thessalonica did. But if I'm honest, this kind of language is odd for us, isn't it? Paul's saying, I want to come see you, but Satan has hindered me from doing so. If I'm wanting to plan a trip to go visit my friends, but say airfare is just a little too much at that time, or I can't make the dates work with responsibilities on the calendar or prior commitments. I don't use this kind of language. I don't tell friends from college, hey, hey, Chris, I would love to come see you that weekend, but Satan has hindered me from being able to do so. You don't call up somebody if you're running late for dinner and say, hey, I'm about 20 minutes late. Satan has hindered me from getting there earlier. This language is interesting to say the least. So what should we make of it or, or how should we digest of it? Some of us are familiar with the concept, the idea, the, 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 the thinking of what's known as spiritual warfare. The idea that we're going about our business, but in addition to what we see and what was happening in the world, there's greater, there's more things going on. And Satan and his demons are seeking our destruction or seeking our harm. Is, is that what is happening here? Well, we have a way that we need to understand this. We'd be wise to see that Satan and even his forces, his demons, those that those that do his bidding, would like nothing more than to destroy, to harm, to wreak havoc upon his church. Christ's church, not Satan's church. Christ's church. And so I don't think our appropriate perspective towards this should be to walk around every day, every week, looking and wondering, okay, how is Satan trying to wreak havoc upon me today? Rather, to have an awareness that there's an enemy out there who wants to destroy your faith, who wants to rip you away from the Savior, who wants to bring harm upon the church, pull them away from trusting in Christ and leaning on Him and on Him alone. Satan's goal is not to give us good days and bad days, but to dissuade us from trusting and worshiping God. Paul was worried that the Thessalonian church was going to face such strong affliction for the name of Christ that they'd be driven off course. And we could certainly be concerned about this, but we should also be aware of ways in which we might be driven off course in our day. It could happen through something like affliction for the name of Christ, persecution of some form or capacity. But it also might be through the converse, the opposite, through peace, through ease, through comfort, through having very little needs in this world, that our prayer life, like water in a reservoir, dries up because there's no fervency to it. What have we to pray for when we have all we need? Let us be on guard against anything that would present dangers to us, that would lull our faith to sleep, requiring no great spiritual endeavor and cause us to think that the Christian pilgrimage is not through many toils and dangers, but is to be a comfortable stroll through a flowery field. Now let me pause here. This whole thing just might seem a little bit odd. But what we have to understand is that the way in which Christ builds his church is one in which he sets himself Before his church as the prize, as the reward, as the glory, as the joy of his people. And so as we see this, Paul writing to the church, he says, Satan hindered us. I wanted to come see you. And you see the the fervency of Paul's heart in verses 19 and 20, where he says, for what is our joy or our hope or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus? Is it not you for you are our glory and our joy? Paul's heart is so tied up with the Thessalonians that he recognizes the great supernatural spiritual value and necessity of being with the Thessalonian church, of walking alongside of them, of carrying them along in the faith, of keeping them from being led astray or led away from Christ. And if we read this, this is the kind of language that we say, whoa, this, this might be a little overboard. What's our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? You know, if if I were to say to you, what is your hope or joy or crown or boast before the Lord Jesus that is coming? The, the, the right answer we would think would be Jesus. He's here. I've waited. I'm in his presence. All is well. All of the toils and dangers and, 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 and hardships and adversity and everything I had to endure in this life. Praise the Lord. Christ has come. But that's not what Paul says. He says, is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. His heart is so tied, so knit together with the Thessalonian church, he can't bear the prospect of him making it to Christ, yet the Thessalonians not. And does this not exhort us, brothers and sisters, to consider our the, the, the fact that the Christian faith cannot be separated from, cannot be divorced from those whom the Lord has given us to walk alongside of, but rather... We have the happy exhortation of singing along with one another that we're almost home. And that one of the things, I don't know how it all works, okay? But one of the things that will be a great joy for the Christian at the return of Christ will be being with those whom we journeyed with. And that is what's going on in Paul's heart here. Now it's interesting, this idea of the return of Christ, this is present all throughout Paul's letters to the Thessalonians, 1 first, first Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. In fact, if you wanted to go through and read 1 Thessalonians today, you would find um, in every chapter near the end of every chapter Paul referencing specifically the coming return of Jesus Christ for his church. This is something we still wait for today. Now Paul didn't put it in there th- thematically like, oh, I'll put that at the end of every chapter. These were uh, epistles or letters that were written in the New Testament and Old Testament books as well. Our, our whole Bibles were not written originally with chapters and verses. Those were put in later uh, by editors who thought it would be helpful for trying to like find uh, parts of books. So we're grateful for those, but it's not like Paul was doing that thematically. But what we see in this is the coming return of Christ is right before Paul's eyes and before his heart as he considers his own life and he considers the life of the church. So let me ask you, where is the return of Christ in your mind, in your perspective? You wake up in the morning, you kind of roll out of bed, and the only thing on your mind, or for most of us, I'm a weird one, I don't really drink much coffee, but for most of us I imagine or I understand that you roll out of bed and the first thing on your mind is coffee. You've got to get something to clear the cobwebs and, and remember what day of the week it is and all sorts of things like that. What drives our mind? As we go about our business, what helps to clear the cobwebs spiritually? What gives hope to our hearts as we just navigate the hardships of life? Paul would lay before us that there could be nothing greater than the return of Christ. But the return of Christ seems kind of vague, seems kind of distant, seems kind of far away. What do I make of it? Okay, Jesus is coming back one day, but what does that mean for me now? When I was probably 9 or 10, our family was on a family vacation uh, in Florida, and my brother and I were playing on rafts out in the ocean. We had drifted a long way out into the water, or what seemed a long way to a 9 or 10-year-old. And so it was to the point where we looked up, and we were concerned we had gone too far hotels and the people and everything on shore seemed a little too small for us. So my older brother and I, well, my older brother did what older brothers do in that situation. He said, all right, you've got to go swim for help. And I said, wait, what? You're bigger than me. And I'm sorry, go get dad. Go get dad. So kind of before we could hammer out an agreement or... or discuss the pros and cons of me swimming versus him swimming. He had pushed me out of the raft and, all right, go. And so I am, I I like, you know, you know, you think all these thoughts all at once and you can process through a lot of things really fast whenever you think that you're about to get eaten by sharks. And so uh, as I'm falling out of the raft and realizing, okay, I'm going to be the one that goes and does this. And I'm I'm starting to put all this together and hoping I'm going to be able to make it to shore and thinking we might be too far. And I didn't know enough about like rip currents and everything, but I knew they were a thing. And, and my mind, sharks were in ocean water everywhere. And it was just was not a good prospect. But then all of a sudden, and, and then not to mention just the idea of swimming that far in, inland. But then all of a sudden, as I fell out and I started to swim, my feet were hitting something. And I stood up, and the water was up to about here. <laughs> and I just kind of looked at my brother like, what's the deal, man? The water was a lot more shallow than we thought. (laughs) One of the great ways that our faith can be discouraged, can be dissuaded, is to make this return of Christ seem so distant. Satan wants to make you, me, us, his church, feel as if Christ... And his glorious return and reign over his creation. His, the, the consummation of his kingdom on earth is so far away that it's not worth hoping in today. It has no power for us today. He wants us to think those buildings are far away. He wants us to think the shore is way too far. And if I try to get in and swim, I'm not going to make it. But the truth is, and one beauty of the fellowship of the church together is... But we are closer to Christ's return than we think. And so therefore, we run in, not swimming as if the current is carrying us out, but running in, kind of jumping in the water as it goes up to about our waist. All the while getting closer and closer and closer to the return of Christ. And you see Paul's emotion here, his glory and joy in verses nineteen and twenty. The return of Christ is so deeply interconnected with the with, with his literal well being. The dynamic nature of the relationship between Paul and the church, the church the church helps to intensify Paul's wonder about the return of Christ. And dear Christian when we are given to despair, when we are given to fear that cripples us, when we are given to unrelenting agony, we don't look up and say, oh, it's all a figment of your imagination, just forget about it. But for Paul, who is in great pain, longing to see the Thessalonians and can't get to them yet, and for us as well, with whatever pains us, The return of Christ is the billboard shining before us in bright flashing lights that God has not forgotten His people and one day Christ will return and He will wipe every tear from your eyes. This is what Paul wants the church to hang on to. He knows in their affliction there are tears. That's why he's trying to get to them, that he can metaphorically wipe those tears with the promise of the return of Christ. And that is what we hang on to, dear brothers and sisters. The coming of Christ is absolutely certain. It's not like the weather app that changes. For instance, last week one of us told a number of people that the weather was looking great for the cookout yesterday. One of us had a weather app that said it was going to be 72 and beautiful. And then the weather changed. The return of Christ does not go up and down, changing, going back and forth like the weather. It is certain. The return of Christ, the promise of Christ coming for His church, Him ushering us into His presence, and His Spirit uh, uh, shepherding and guiding and keeping us to Himself for, his, for our good, for our hearts being uh, uh, nourished in Him. It's not as if we are traveling, navigating this life right now in the pitch darkness of of, of, of midnight with with no clouds or, or with with clouds filling the sky, no moon, no stars, and we can't even see anything in front of us. No, the coming of the return of Christ for the church is not in a dark, uh, a void night. It is like we are at the shore watching just the first beams of the sunlight pierce the sky and we can see our way around and we can understand navigating this life as followers of Christ because the return of Christ is starting to pierce over the horizon and helps to inform our hope and our waiting upon Him, even in the midst of affliction. And so the return of Christ is what Paul holds up before the church as the, the means by which they wait. But also the other way they wait is with present awareness of affliction in verses 1-5 through 5 of chapter 3. So unable to bear it any longer, Paul sends his protege Timothy to check on the Thessalonians. And look at what Timothy had been sent to do. Look at this in verses 1-3. through 3. Paul says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, To establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Consider this language of, of establishing and exhorting. Establishing, teaching the faith. Not just teaching to fill heads, but teaching to know that heads being filled with the promises of the gospel with the wonders of the gospel, Christ Jesus coming to earth as an atonement for our sins. Living the perfect life we could not live, dying the death that we deserve, enduring the wrath of God that is due to all of us, due to our sin, that we might escape that wrath and be anchored to Him. Traveling, traversing into the blessed presence of our God through Christ, Paul is establishing the church in this truth. And then he's not only establishing them so they can have great high thoughts of philosophical wonder at the idea of a God who has created and sustains all things, but exhorting them that this God who has come to them, who has redeemed them, has rescued them, that he might hold on to them. Paul wants them to not let go of the faith that has been once for all delivered to them. Establishing, exhorting, establishing, exhorting, establishing, exhorting. This is a prayer I have for our church. That we would be established and exhorting. We would not get so established that we lose sight of exhorting. But if we lose sight of what we are established in the faith and we just exhort, we lose sight of reality and we lose sight of true, real hope. Here's what I mean. We don't need a group of people who are gathering together. We don't need to walk alongside of one another in the faith, just telling each other, hey, it'll be all right. It'll be all right. Sorry you're having a hard day. No, we walk alongside of one another in the faith and we seek to spur one another on, reminding each other of God's love for us in Christ Jesus and helping one another to hope in the coming return of Christ and in the victory of Christ over sin and death that we would have these things to cling to as we are exhorted and established in the faith as a means of understanding and, 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 and truly living to the glory of Christ our King. That was vain, nebulous hope, but was promised anchoring in Christ. Established, exhorted. And now he sees you see how Timothy worked to exhort and establish for the purpose of guarding the Thessalonians in their afflictions. Paul doesn't want anyone, verse three, to be moved by these afflictions. He says, For you yourselves know that we are destined to for this, for when we were with you, we kept, kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. Paul's saying, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised of the opposition that you are facing for following Christ. Once again, we don't know all the details of what was going on in Thessalonica at this time. But we know that in a city that was heavily secular, in a city that had a heavy, strong Jewish population, in a city and in a region where Caesar and Rome was king, and where peace and mercy was promised through trusting in Caesar and through, 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 through the people living in obedience to the decrees of Rome. And now these Christians come out and they start saying, no, there's another king, there's a greater king, there's King Jesus. And we're going to start living our lives in obedience to him, not being necessarily difficult as citizens just to be difficult, but just saying, no, we can't worship Caesar as you demand, but worshiping Jesus as the one who rules over them. And this is this caused great trouble for the church in Thessalonica. we have heard mentioned before of people imprisoned, of threats, of, 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 of extortion by the authorities exacting large financial sums from the Thessalonians to get out of prison. And in all of these, Paul wants the church not to lose sight, to be established, to be exhorted. Because he knows that when affliction comes upon the church, when opposition comes upon the church, when persecution comes upon the church, the church will be tempted to do one of two things. Either disbelieve God and His Word and say, okay, okay, I... I, I, This... Persecution we're enduring for this for this reason is very difficult. Maybe, maybe we need to deviate from what we believe or disbelieve God's promises. And believe, okay, these things God has said to us, they're true. We believe them to be true, but we don't think God is going to see us through. Did you see that rounded up? Another band of Christians over by Jason's house. That was a guy in Thessalonica. Over by his house a couple of weeks ago. Our church is shrinking week by week by week. Because... They're growing in number in the, in the prisons. This is what Paul is worried about. That the church would be de- departing from the faith or that they would deviate uh, or, or that they would be departing from one another because they'd be imprisoned. He says, in spite of either one of these coming, he says, I want you to know these afflictions, you knew they were coming. And now we don't face imprisonment for the faith. And, and I want to be very careful as we think through this and we apply this to our day and to our time. We don't face imprisonment for the faith. We enjoy blessings that uh, freedoms uh, by virtue of where we live in this nation that has afforded us so many freedoms, freedom of religion, freedom to assemble, freedom to gather and all of these things that 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 we're not having a martyrdom complex here or anything of the sort. We should praise God for the blessings and the freedoms that we do have. And yet, if we're going to be sensible, if we're going to be realistic, we understand that There are aspects of God's word, aspects of the gospel that are growing more and more out of step with our day and age. Whether it's what God's word teaches about sexuality, whether it's what God's word teaches about God having created man and woman in his image, whether it's what God's word teaches about uh, how Christ is the only way to come to know God, preaching a message of the exclusivity of Christ. There are all sorts of things that people might look at us and they might say, "Hmm, it's interesting that you believe you, you, you really believe that. That's kind of backwards or bigoted." And we don't go looking for these things and we don't go seeking seeking this out. But it, it's possible. I know some in our church family who are facing seemingly greater and greater pressure in a in a sense in a, in, a, in, a, in employment, having to having pressure perhaps to affirm and celebrate things that God's word would not have them to affirm and celebrate. And maybe that's the boat that you would find yourself in. Brothers and sisters, what we should see here is we don't get a playbook for fighting back for all of our rights. We get a playbook for trusting in God. We get a playbook for hoping in Him, for taking solace in the the, the return of Christ that is coming, and for how we bear with one another, and we exhort and establish and encourage one another in the faith. You know, there's something interesting there for us to just keep in mind from the passage actually last week as Paul wrote of the opposition that the church was facing and he wrote of the church in Judea in chapter 2, verse 14, he said he mentioned the the persecution they endured and he said, from your own countrymen. And that's that's a danger that the Christian faces in our day and age, right? Your own children that think your faith is backwards. Your own parents that think your faith is out of step with what you were raised with. Your neighbors who would raise an eyebrow as to what you believe. Whatever it is, brothers and sisters, understand that it's not to be surprising that it would come upon us. And we don't return any vitriol or what we would perceive to be mistreatment with mistreatment or vitriol on our part. We return with love and gentleness and charity and hopefulness, with hearts lifted up in the promise that Christ will t- will come again, and that our commitment to Him. Our commitment to one another is that we are going to help one another to be found faithful to Christ, faithful to his word, not wanting to be ones who would depart or deviate or be swayed from the message of the gospel, but being willing to suffer affliction, knowing our Lord himself, who was mistreated ultimately to the point of his crucifixion, that if he endured it, therefore it would be wise for us to understand that we might endure it. And so this is one reason why God's Word has given us this to us. This is one reason why we have expositional preaching every week. We aren't facing this right now. But this is part of this preparation process. Peter writes, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. We, we will better endure affliction when we are prepared for it ahead of time. When I was playing football when I was younger, there were the times when football season started and I had done all my conditioning work ahead of time. So I could hold my own and all the conditioning and all the wearing the pads and the hot heat and all that and everything. And I was fine. And then were the summers I remember where I was a little more lazy in my conditioning. And it was really hot. And we'd run wind sprints and it would be really heavy. We'd be breathing heavy. Might need to check out for a bit. Brothers and sisters, whenever the heat comes, I want us to run well. I want us to run well because we have been conditioned in the gospel. We're not surprised when it comes upon us. This is why we pray regularly for brothers and sisters elsewhere in the globe, around the globe, who face forms of persecution that are far more severe than anything we face. Because we know that the life of following Christ is one where we follow a crucified Savior. And so may us, may we not be surprised by it. Many of you remember that nasty nor'easter last October. Knocked out power for a few days. Patrick and I were at a pastor's retreat. We drove back home late that night to try to get back before it got really bad. I remember when I got home, I parked in the garage and I had to run out. I think my trash can was like racing across the street. Uh, And I looked up and the wind just howling in the trees, howling in the trees. And I kind of just stood there for a minute and was like, wow, this is really bad. And then it kind of struck me, Stephen, don't be surprised. You've been watching the weather. You've been seeing the news. You knew a storm was coming in for many days. Don't stand there and be surprised. And don't stand there and let a tree fall on you right now. Brothers and sisters, let us just receive this as a warning. Hey, there might be showers on the horizon, but if there is, our Lord will prove himself sufficient. Our Lord will prove himself capable. And our Lord Jesus Christ, who promises to be with his church, he will not look back and he will not look down on us from above and say, and wish us his best. But we know that for the church, for those who wait on him, even for those who wait even to the point of death for the name of Christ, We know that the Lord Jesus will return for His church. And so we know that by waiting well, by enduring affliction, by understanding it presently that it can come, and by looking to the return of Christ that will come, we know that we can look up and we can in that waiting, we can take solace today that our hope, our joy, our boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming will be one another we waited well we exhorted one another well we trusted well and may it not be said of us what paul feared for the thessalonians in verse 5 that he sent to learn about their faith for fear that the tempter had tempted them and led them astray and their labor would have been in vain you have two options You can come back next week and hear Patrick preach chapter 3, verse 16 to 13, to see if they had been tempted and led astray. Or you can read those few verses after this and see for yourself. The answer is good. The Thessalonians were sustained by the Lord. And brothers and sisters, we will be sustained by our Lord, our King Jesus, who will one day return for us as well. So let us wait well. Awareness of the coming return of Christ and certainty about affliction that the church will face enables us not to be swayed away from the faith. Brothers and sisters, this is our preparation. Our preparation is day by day, looking over that horizon, and anticipating the return of Christ, and knowing it is coming. Seeing each day the the, the sun that pierces over the the edge of the horizon gets a little brighter, and Christ is coming. And guarding our hearts, being reminded of the gospel, and being prepared, knowing... We can wait, and we can wait well, and we can wait together. So let us do this tonight. We pray, and, and now let us pray. God, we ask that you would give us the mercy to wait on you well. Even as we fear affliction for the name of Christ, let us not be ones who over-sensationalize things, over, over-dramatize things, but just in a happy, joyful unexplainable manner to those around us confidently wait on the risen King Jesus, knowing that he is with his people, that he will sustain them. Let this be the case for us, your people, your church bought with the blood of Christ so precious that nothing can take us away from you. Even if we should shed our own blood, the blood of Christ protects us and is our hope. So it is in him that we wait and is on him that we hope. And it's upon him that we look, knowing he will return. And knowing until then, he gives us his body, his church, for our good. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.